Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, New American Standard Bible. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and verse 6 and 7, New American Standard Bible. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to begin a new series that takes a look at the really big story that the Bible tells, a story that stretches from Genesis to Revelation. So we want to start looking at some of the key scriptures that are present in different books of the Bible that help illustrate that the Bible really is one single story of our magnificent God unfolding His plan of redemption. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books and part-time historian. You know, he checks the record to see whose turn it is to make the coffee. But today, the coffee is already made, and much of it has been consumed. Ardi, how about telling us about what this series is going to be about? Certainly. As many of our Anchored by Truth listeners know, we like to cite four lines of evidence that help us to demonstrate that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. And those four lines of evidence are remarkable unity, reliable history, fulfilled prophecy, and improved and rewarding destinies for those people who have turned to the Bible as a source of inspiration and truth. So today we want to start a series that helps illustrate the remarkable unity of the Bible. We're going to do that by focusing on 15 critical scriptures that will take us from Genesis to Revelation. Now, these scriptures are going to show, they're going to help illustrate that the Bible never veers from its central focus on a person, a process, and a people. Well, of course, the person is Jesus. 
A proper understanding of the Bible will reveal that Jesus is present in every book of the Bible in some form or fashion, and often people will say that Jesus actually appears on every page. You just have to know where to look for him. So Jesus is the central figure and the most important person of all when it comes to the Bible. Now the process that the Bible is all about is God's process of redemption. It's his process of redeeming a group of fallen people who will someday reside with him for all eternity in heaven. So the process that the Bible focuses on is the process of redeeming his people, the process of redemption. Now, of course, the people that the Bible has a focus on is the company of believers who trust exclusively in God to provide a Savior who will save them from their sins, because these are the people who are going to someday reside with God in heaven for all eternity. Now, some of the people who are going to be with God in heaven, part of that company of the church, that company of believers, some of those believers lived under the old covenant, and they had to look forward to the appearance of the Messiah, the appearance of Jesus, but that didn't make them any less a part of God's genuine and true church. Now, of course, the majority of believers have lived since the new covenant began. They have lived after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. But all those saints, the old covenant saints and the new covenant saints, all together form God's true church. And that church is the group of people that the Bible has in its sights as the central focus for all that redemptive activity that God has undertaken in history. Now, I think it's important to recognize that this group of people is so important to God that the Bible refers to that group collectively as the Bride of Christ. So, in other words, in order to be able to illustrate the relationship between Jesus and His church, God uses the analogy of the marriage relationship, the closest possible of human unions. And so, the Bible refers to that group of believers, that company of people who have placed their trust in Christ, as the Bride of Christ. And so what we're going to do in this series is to try to help people see through these 15 what I call critical scriptures how the Bible's focus never varies from Jesus, never varies from the process of redemption, and never varies from God preparing and collecting a people for himself who will someday be with him in heaven. You know, sometimes people who haven't spent much time with the Bible see the Bible as a sort of random collection of books that have widely varying purposes, widely differing details, and all kinds of stories. But when you begin to see that there is in fact a common theme that weaves throughout all those books, throughout all those individual details, facts, and stories, when you begin to see the common theme, you begin to see that there is a beautiful forest that is composed of the individual trees. Hmm, that's something that you rarely think about. There is a great temptation today to believe that books of, say, Leviticus or Chronicles in the Old Testament have very little to do with the systemic theology of Romans or the Apostle John's reassurances in his three great epistles near the end of the New Testament. I mean, Leviticus seems very strange to a contemporary reader with its elaborate specifications of what sacrifices to make when and how to make them. And many books like Chronicles contain extensive genealogies that can boggle our minds with details that just seem inconsequential in an age of online videos and non-stop entertainment. But you're saying that far from being unimportant to our lives, that all of those books contain information that show that, just as he promised in Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 6, God has never left us or forsaken us. 
And the author of Hebrews in the New Testament, in Hebrews 13.5, quotes that passage from Deuteronomy to remind his own readers of that promise. We see from this one simple example the unity that's present in the scriptures. The initial promise that God made to never leave us or forsake us appeared in the fifth book of the Bible, part of the Bible is called the Torah, in Deuteronomy, but that promise is quoted in one of the latter books of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews. So you see from just this one simple example that there is a remarkable unity that's contained in the scriptures. You know, sometimes you will hear people say something like, well, I believe in the God of the New Testament, the God of love, but not the God of the Old Testament, who was all about wrath and destruction. Well, that kind of sentiment, that kind of statement is based on the fallacious notion that somehow God changed between the Old Testament and the New. But of course, that's just wrong. God is the same in both the Old and the New Testament, and God's focus on, again, a person, a process, and a people is carried on continuously from the very first verse, as we're going to see of Genesis, all the way through the last chapter of Revelation. And it is interesting that in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, God makes that very point. In the contemporary English version, that verse says, I am the Lord, all-powerful, and I never change. It's interesting that God made the statement in Malachi, because Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and most scholars believe it was written between 430 B.C. and 450 B.C., That means it was written right before what is commonly called the intertestamental period. This means there was a gap of about 450 years between Malachi and Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. So it is really interesting that the Lord told Malachi to tell his people that he, the Lord, does not change, just as they were going to be a 450-year period where he wasn't going to send any new prophets or make any new revelations to his people. We get antsy today if we don't get news updates or messages on our phone. I'm sure there must have been some during that 450 years who wondered whether all the promises that God had made during the previous 1,000-year period about sending the Messiah were going to come true. Exactly. And that's why it's so important for us every now and then to step back and look at the overarching saga of God's plan of redemption as it unfolds throughout the entire period of biblical history. You know, as human beings, we tend to have a time horizon that focuses on days and weeks. And even the most patient and far-sighted among us might think in terms of months or years. And only very, very, very few of us will ever have the time horizons of even decades. Well, that's perfectly natural because of our limited lifespans. But God, the immortal, eternal, everlasting God, has unfolded His plan over centuries and even in millennia. Now today, in our age, in the 21st century, we have the benefit of having seen far more of God's unfolding plan than the believers of the Old Testament ever did, or even the believers in Jesus' day. But sometimes we are so far removed from the time of those revelations that we just about take the big story, the overarching story, for granted. We miss the amazing unity of a single story that has been written by dozens of human authors in writings that were recorded over a period of 1,500 years. Now, in a certain sense, I feel that condensing that huge story into 15 critical scriptures is a little bit presumptuous, 
And I really want to emphasize that people need to not just focus on these scriptures, but of course on the entire Bible. But I've chosen these scriptures that we're going to talk about because they help us see, again, from a very high viewpoint, that in fact the Bible is a single story. And that's what I really want listeners to be able to do, is to trace the line of the story, the great story, the grand saga of creation and fall and redemption. I want listeners to be able to trace that big story as it unfolds throughout the entirety of scriptures. And so these 15 scriptures that we're going to talk about are certainly just illustrative parts for the purpose of calling listeners' attention to specific episodes in the Bible that show that the Bible really is one continuous story. Every great story consists of a beginning, a middle, and an end. Now, I think if you were to follow some of the most popular stories on movies or on TV or on the internet, you might get the idea that that old adage is no longer conventional wisdom. I mean, some of the stories that seem to be launched today, some of the franchises that we have in popular media, never seem to have an end. But the Bible is definitely an illustration of a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And of course, beginnings is what the entire book of Genesis is about. Genesis is a book of beginnings, including the beginning of the entire created order. Now, it's not fair to say that Genesis is the beginning of everything because God clearly is eternal. So God was there before Genesis, before he created the heavens and the earth. So Genesis tells us about the beginnings of the created order, the physical universe, and even the spiritual parts of the universe, such as the angels. Genesis tells us about the beginnings of anything that was created, but it doesn't tell us anything about God's beginning because God doesn't have a beginning. God is immortal. God is eternal. God is everlasting. God has always existed. God is the only self-existent being that there ever has been or ever will be. But our focus right now is going to be on Genesis, and specifically on Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now, I would like for people to notice that in Genesis 1-1, Genesis 1-1 doesn't say that God created the heaven and the earth. Genesis 1-1 says that God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens is plural. Earth is singular. So, the story of creation, fall, and redemption, our story begins with multiple heavens, but with only one earth. Wow. We never think about that, do we? The entire created order began with multiple heavens, but only a single earth. And now that you point that out, we see right away that from the very first verse of the Bible, we have the setting for the overall story and even a hint at the end. We know, obviously, that we begin our own lives on earth, but for the believers, we will spend our eternity in heaven. That's an amazing thought. God not only tells us how he started everything, but he encapsulated the big story in the very first verse. It takes a pretty skillful writer to do that. Yes, it does. And it helps when that writer is infinite. Anyway, there are a few things I'd like to point out about how the story, our story, starts. You know, unlike the creation myths that circulate in many religions and cultures, the Bible opens with a very simple, clear, and straightforward statement of fact. God created everything. Now, theologians will often emphasize that when God created, he created ex nihilo, which means literally that God created out of nothing. In other words, God did not use any pre-existing matter or energy and just shape them. 
God created everything by his own ineffable power. So one thing to notice right away is that the Bible treats God's creation of everything as literal history. Now, obviously, that plain statement of fact in today's culture is very controversial. Well, the next thing to notice is that theologians have typically referred to those multiple heavens as three different heavens, and that helps explain the use of the plural heavens, not a singular heaven. The first heaven is the atmosphere that immediately is above the earth. So that's the space in which the birds fly and the clouds drift and, frankly, from which we get rain and storms. The atmosphere right above the earth is what theologians typically think of as the first heaven. The second heaven is what we think of as space. Of course, that's the vast stretch of the universe that surrounds our Earth and encompasses 50 billion or 100 billion galaxies, each of which has 50 to 100 billion stars. Now, the third heaven is what we typically think of as heaven, meaning God's abode. That's where God has his throne room and with whatever other heavenly structures he's chosen to surround himself. So these are the three heavens that theologians typically speak of, and that's one of the reasons that the opening verse of Genesis speaks of creating the heavens and the earth. And the Apostle Paul speaks of being given a vision of this third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, quote, I have to brag, there is nothing to be gained by it, but I must brag about the visions and the other things that the Lord has shown me. I know about one of Christ's followers who was taken up into the third heaven 14 years ago. I don't know if the man was still in his body when it happened, but God certainly knows, unquote. Yes. And again, just a note about the unity of Scripture. That quote that you just cited is from Corinthians, which is in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah also had what was apparently a similar experience. And he wrote about that in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah was transported to the very throne room of God where he saw God on his throne. And that was where Isaiah saw the seraphim who were surrounding God's throne, each of whom had six wings. So we didn't get any details from Paul about what he saw when he was transported to the third heavens. But we get a couple of more details from Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. So again, we see that there are corresponding episodes in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Again, just another example of the unity of Scripture. Things that are reported in the Old Testament, often there is a similar report of the same thing in the New Testament. But again, right now we are focusing on how we see the grand story of creation, fall, and redemption unfold throughout history. And that grand story of creation, fall, and redemption unfolds on a stage that is set by multiple heavens surrounding a single earth. So right from the beginning, God gave us a clue that he was going to do something remarkable on that single planet. Remember that the earth was created on day one along with the multiple heavens. God didn't actually create the stellar bodies until day four of creation. He had created the earth on day one. And then he spent days two and three beginning to shape the earth so that it would be suitable for life, including man. So God gave us a clue right from the beginning that something remarkable was going to happen on Earth because he has that single planet, that Earth, surrounded by these multiple heavens. 
And God doesn't even get around to populating one portion of those heavens, the stellar bodies of space. God doesn't even get around to doing that until day four. So God is telling us right from the beginning that his story, the story that he was preparing, was going to take place on that planet Earth. I like the way you phrase that. God very intentionally set the stage for the story that he was going to tell. He created the heavens and the earth, and then shaped the earth for the creatures he would bring forth on day six, including man. And after he finished that work of creation, he proclaimed everything, quote, very good, unquote. Then he rested from his creative activity. So everything in the created order started very good. The story had the best possible beginning. But, unfortunately, it didn't stay that way. And that's where we come to our second scripture. Despite the fact that man had the best possible beginning, man didn't let things remain in that state of blissful perfection for long. Our second scripture comes from Genesis chapter 3. So in less than three chapters, we move from bliss to blight. The story did move along, didn't it? Yes, it did. So in chapter 3 of Genesis, we see the second series of beginnings that's recorded in the book of Genesis. In chapter 1, we saw an unbroken string of positive beginnings. The beginning of the physical universe. The beginning of a planet that was suited for habitation. The beginning of living creatures. And finally, we saw the beginning of one of those creatures that was made in God's own image, man. Now in chapter 3, which we heard in our second scripture, we also have a series of beginnings. But unfortunately, none of those beginnings is positive. You're thinking that in Genesis chapter 3, we have the first rebellion against God, the first temptation, the first lie, the first sin, the first attempt to excuse a sin, the first curse, and the first death. Yikes! That is a pretty negative set of firsts. Exactly. But Satan's temptation of Eve tells us that the first rebellion against God wasn't man's rebellion. It was Satan and the demon's rebellion. So let's circle back to our earlier point about the heavens surrounding the earth. Satan brought the first temptation from heaven to earth. But, and this is a really key point, That's all Satan brought from heaven to earth, the temptation. He brought the temptation, but not the sin. He brought that temptation in the form of the first recorded lie in the Bible, when Satan implied in his question to Eve that God was being unfair in God's restriction on not eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Satan was implying that God was doing something that was unfair to Adam and Eve, and of course that was a lie. So, through bringing that lie, Satan brought the first temptation to earth, Satan having come from one of those heavens, but it was Adam and Eve's decision to succumb to that temptation. Well, it's interesting that Eve was the first to eat of the forbidden fruit, but the Bible lays the blame at Adam's feet. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21 and 22 say, quote, Just as we will die because of Adam, We will be raised to life because of Christ. Adam brought death to us all, and Christ will bring life to us all. Why does the Bible focus the fault on Adam and not on Eve? Well, that's a very reasonable question. 
And while I don't know that I can give a comprehensive answer, I think there are at least three observations that we can make immediately. First, God had given the instruction not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil directly to Adam, and he had expected Adam to pass it along to Eve. Well, Adam did evidently pass the instruction along to Eve, but God held Adam responsible because God had given Adam the responsibility for being his steward to care for creation. Second, the Bible says that Adam was there with her, and Eve immediately gave Adam some of the fruit. So if Adam was there with her, why didn't Adam step in and help Eve fend off Satan in some way? I mean, at a minimum, as the one who had directly received God's command, Adam had a duty to remind Eve of that command, but we have no evidence that Adam even made that much of a minimal effort to thwart Satan's scheme. Third, Adam was quite evidently a willing participant in the whole affair. Now, it's impossible to know what would have happened if Adam had refused to eat when Eve handed him the fruit, because Adam didn't refuse to eat of the fruit. And so this all indicates that Adam was just as amenable to succumbing to the temptation as Eve was. So the Bible ultimately, when it talks about that first sin entering the physical created order, the Bible points to Adam for a variety of reasons, but in minimum, Adam had the original duty to obey God and to resist any temptations that might have come to them. At any rate, the big point is that in this third chapter of Genesis, we now have the fall of creation, fall and redemption. But when we say that man fell, what do we mean by that? In other words, what were the effects of the fall? Well, there were a number, but in the time that we have left today, we really don't have time to mention them all. But we can at least hit the highlights, or maybe it'd be better to say the lowlights. The first effect of the fall was that man and the creatures under his dominion became subject to death. Now, for man, that death was both spiritual and physical. The spiritual death for Adam came immediately. The physical death would be more than 900 years down the road. But that didn't mean that death had not immediately come as a result of the sin. The second effect of the fall was that the earth, the planet that God had specifically prepared to support man, became hostile to man's continuation rather than specifically enable man to live on it. For instance, the plant world that God had created to provide food for men and animals no longer brought forth only beneficial plants. The Bible specifically mentions that now thorns and thistles, which are clearly inedible to men, would grow spontaneously whereas the plants that man needed for food would have to be cultivated through hard work. Well, anyone who has ever planted a garden knows that part of the curse is still in operation. You don't have to do anything to produce weeds, but it's a fight to get even the first tomato off the bush successfully. Yes. Well, the term fall almost seems mild to describe the changes that occurred when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The point is that we now have thousands of years of being able to see what happened when Adam ignored God's clear command. But the good news is that someday everyone who knows Jesus will be able to know how beautiful and blessed life will be when we obey him perfectly. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer that our communities and nation would come again to a place where we are giving appropriate worship to the God who is the true Lord of creation and redemption. 
prayer for restoration of the worship of the one true God. Lord of destiny, God of holiness, you ordained the fate of men and nations before the cornerstone of creation was laid. You are blameless in all your acts and commands, and therefore what you ordain must come to pass. Who among men can resist your will? What you sovereignly declare will happen. We rejoice that our hope rests in the power and mercy of an almighty God and not in lesser beings. Lord, you know far better than we the blight that has come upon this nation. We have turned from honoring your name and seeking your will to self-exaltation and celebrating our rebellion. We cannot imagine how this must grieve you and give you justifiable cause for rebuke and reproof. We pray that you would raise up in our midst godly men and women who will be the leaders and teachers in a national renewal. We know that you have preserved a faithful remnant for yourself because you have assured us that the gates of hell could not prevail against your church. We praise you that Christ Jesus himself makes intercession for us while he sits at your right hand. We praise him and offer this and all prayers in his holy name. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, Try out crystalseabooks.com where we're not famous, but our boss is.